Want to go ahead and read the thing for us? All righty. In the summer of 1945, a pair of wild animals broke into a rural hospital in New Jersey, terrorizing the patients, attacking the staff, and breaking whatever they could get their claws on. By the end of the day, approximately $400 in damage had occurred. A doctor was exhibiting signs of shock, four nurses required stitches, and an orderly was being treated for a broken toe. Most disturbingly, a patient, 10-year-old Denty Smith of the nearby township of Erewhon, was missing. He'd been carried out the window and away, and no one knew where he'd ended up or if he'd survived the journey. The incident did not receive much press coverage because it occurred at the very end of World War II, while the understaffed New Jersey State Police were combing the wooded area outside the hospital looking for any sign of the missing child, the radio and papers were celebrating VJ Day, the official Japanese surrender that ended the bloodiest conflict of the 20th century. And while Denty's mother, Mrs. Ginny Smith, was receiving word that her two elder sons were safe and on their way home from the Pacific Theater, she was also coping with the news that her youngest had been abducted out of a hospital by wild animals. On this episode of Relative Disasters, The Jersey Devil Attacks of 1945. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. And boy, do I have some sidebars for you today. Oh, goody. I am Ella, head biologist here at the Relative Disasters Cloning Group, LLC. And I'm her brother, Greg, chair of the Endangered Omnivores Department here at Relative Disasters University. Oh, congratulations. Are you up for tenure this year? Yes, yes, probably. I don't know. It's like the 50th post I've had here at RDU. You should be in great shape. Thanks so much for that horrifying story, Greg. Yeah, this, this is, is a weird one. A really this is weird a tough one. one. Mostly what I looked at was the Denty Smith papers, uh, mm-hmm. the April 1975 cover article in the New in the National Geographic magazine. Uh, I mm-hmm. don't know if you've seen it in our dad's collection, but it was one of my favorites. Uh, yeah, that article yeah, yeah, yeah. is called Into the Lair of the Jersey Devil. Right, right. It's got that weird uh, picture on the cover. Um, mm-hmm. Gosh. Oh, it was that photographer who was always doing the, the wildlife stuff back in the... T- I can't remember the guy's name, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the one you Well, talking. you're thinking of the writer, Miles Morrison. Uh, the photos are yes. actually by Denty Smith. And that article is ah, actually full of like plot twist <laughs> infographics, and they have one of those huge fold-out maps of the Pine Barrens, which was super helpful. Yes. Uh, so that and the follow-up article, which appeared in April of 1979, Pine Barren Secrets, What We Still Don't Know About the Jersey Devil, those are yep. both excellent resources. And okay. a special shout-out to the microfiche room at the Egg Harbor Public Library. We're a very oh. patient librarian named Ann Fletcher Milstrom scanned half a dozen articles from the historic Nemo County and Burlington County newspaper collections for me. Thank you, Ann. Yes. Thank you, Ann. Patient librarians are the best. A godsend. Yes, absolutely. So as we laid out in our intro, in the summer of 1945, most Americans were paying close attention to the news, and the news at that time was all war news. Yeah. So the United States was preparing to bomb Japan, uh, battles were raging across the Pacific, and the Allies were mopping things up in Europe following Germany's surrender in early May. Right. Coastal New Jersey on the American East Coast was no exception to this heightened interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the town of Mount Holly on May 8th, there was a parade and a party to celebrate VE Day that lasted for two days. They had a nice. little Mardi Gras. Hey, there you go. Uh, after which school let out for the summer two weeks early, presumably because the teachers were done. <laughs> yeah, one would think. So on May 11th, a local kid named Denty Smith biked home from Mount Holly, where he lived during the school year with his aunt and uncle, to his parents' place in Erewhon, which is in an unincorporated township in Nemo County, which in turn is right smack in the middle of the largest pine barrens in the United States. And it's important, when when we talk about the state of New Jersey uh, in the United States, New Jersey has this weird reputation of being like, 
you know, kind of a very industrial state. And mm. people forget there is a lot of farmland and a lot of forest yes. in New Jersey. So. Uh, it's not called the Garden State for nothing. <laughs> New Jersey has some very, very beautiful places to visit. Uh, Erewhon is, uh, I, I would I would say, one of those. Well, I looking would say... At, looking at the maps, it looks nice. The Pine Barrens is very beautiful in a kind of weird way. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read uh, John McPhee's essay. Gosh, I forget what it's called. It's not a source for this article. But he talks right, about right. what it's like to travel through the Pine Barrens and to live there. It could be very rough. Uh, the sure. pine barrens are a low, scrubby forest where small and medium-sized pines make up the tallest part of the vegetation. Mm-hmm. And if you're wondering what a giant forest is doing in an area that should be part of the developing urban sprawls of Philadelphia, <laughs> New York City, maybe Washington, D.C., why is it so green? Well, it has to do with the soil, which is wet and sandy and acidic. Okay. So though the Pine Barrens in New Jersey looks like a thriving wilderness, because it is, the soil is so poor for both building and agriculture that it's been largely left alone. Sure. I mean, that makes sense. So like you said, even today, if you happen to fly over central coastal New Jersey, you see this vast dark green area, and that is the New Jersey Pine Barren. Okay. You ready for a history sidebar? Yes. All right. The Lenni and Lenape Native Americans lived in and used the land until the arrival of European colonists from Sweden and the Netherlands around 1650. Okay. These colonists had been promised fertile land in the Pine Barrens, but very few could actually make a living, and most resettled to the coast or moved on further inland to Pennsylvania and Trenton. One early piece of correspondence describes the soil as, quote, so poor as to be salted end quote, which I thought was interesting, uh, given that there was an incredibly biodiverse forest growing on it. Yeah. Uh, But they're thinking of what you need to grow corn and potatoes, and it is not that soil. Ready for the Smiths? All (laughs) right. The heroes of our story. Well, you know, I feel bad for the Smiths. So yeah, let's let's get into the Smiths. I I do. I do. All right. I do and I don't. Okay. That's No, that is completely fair. So the Smith family arrived sometime in the 1830s from Liverpool, and they bought about 100 acres in Erewhon, which even at Erewhon prices must have taken all their available cash because their neighbors moved on to better land and they just kind of hunkered down. They were surviving for the next few generations on chicken and cranberries, the only two things they could manage to keep alive out there. Okay. Did you know chickens can eat pine cones? Uh, no. That's cool. Yeah, apparently they can like go for the grubs that go for the pine cones, and then they can also eat the pine cones themselves. Okay, that makes sense, I suppose. So, if you're going to farm in the middle of a pine forest, chickens are actually a pretty good choice. Okay. Denty Smith's father, Leonardo Smith, inherited his family's chicken farm in 1925 and began to expand it. Okay. So he realized that the bog on their land, which had only been used for cranberries, could support duck, geese, and swans, and he was the first smith to turn a profit by selling Christmas and Thanksgiving geese to the market in Trenton, which is about 50 miles north of Nemo County. Because he fed his birds cranberries all summer, they were exceptionally fat and sweet, and he really cleaned up. Those would be dried cranberries, by the way. Right. Uh, He really cleaned up on these geese. Geese, yeah. Even through the 1930s and the Great Depression. Wow, okay. So these were like famous geese then. You'd you'd want a Leonardo Smith goose for your Thanksgiving or Christmas table. They were locally famous. We're not talking the turducken or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Or the tofurkey, for that matter. They were a little more expensive. They were a little nicer. They weren't famous in New York City. Right, but the people living there would want them. Yeah, they were treats. Okay, cool. Uh, So Leonardo used the goose money to expand his bird empire, and by the time Denti was born in 1935, he was raising ostriches, turkeys, partridge, and canaries in addition to I'm sorry, he was raising ostriches in New Jersey? Yes. That's amazing. Leonardo had a vision. (laughs) Sure, yeah, he sounds like a man with vision. And I think his thought was that ostriches would do well because the forest isn't very tall, so they can't get lost. I love and, that logic. That's you know, perfect. Ostriches like sand. And sure. There is abundant sand out there. 
So, yeah, he got a couple pairs of ostriches from Australia. It was a big deal. They had a little blurb in the paper. So by 1935, he's actually in possession of 250 acres of the Pine Barrens, which, again, was not expensive. But Leonardo's making it work. Okay. Okay. Unfortunately, with a newborn and twin eight-year-olds, the bird farm was too much for Ginny Smith, Leonardo's wife. And she and the boys moved out when Denti was about six months old. Okay. It seems from the letters and legal documents like it was fairly amicable. They never actually divorced, and Ginny lived about three minutes down the road in a house that Leonardo built for them. So I kind of wonder if it was just like the noise that was driving her crazy or like having a baby on top of the noise and the smell or... I mean, that's a lot. Maybe the ostriches freaked her out. I mean, I wouldn't put a baby near ostriches. Those things are yikes. Or a swan. Swans are vicious. Yeah, swans are violent. Swans are violent. So maybe it was just like too dangerous for the kids. It sounds like it could have been, yeah. I think Ginny had just like had it. So she moves down the road. Neither of them ever remarried, which makes me think again that it was more like a separation than an actual divorce. And Ginny goes on to work a bunch of odd jobs, and she sends the boys to live in Mount Holly with her sister during the school year. Okay. We got to take a quick sidebar for the Smith boys' names because it is incredibly confusing. Okay. You ready for this? Were they one of those families that, like, named everybody? Yeah, they gave everybody the exact same name. They were, like, doing Uh, George Foreman before (laughs) before George Foreman. Before George Foreman, yep, yep. Okay. So Mrs. Smith's maiden name was Polk, P-O-L-K, and she is descended from former U.S. President James Knox Polk. Uh, James K. Polk, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So apparently this is the source of a lot of pride for the Polks, and almost all the male descendants are named James Knox or James Polk or variations. Okay. It just gets incredibly confusing, and I pity anyone who has to do genealogical research on this family. Yeah. So Ginny Smith's sons are in order— James Knox Polk Smith and his twin brother, Polk James Knox Smith. Oh my God. And the youngest, because she's out of that name, she's out of the James Knox Polk names. Okay. So the youngest kid is actually named President James Polk Smith. They named him President. Yes. That's just mean. So his first name is President. It's actually on his 1935 birth certificate. And one of the witnesses took the time to scrawl a couple question marks in the margin. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> hence, hence why he went by Denti. That makes hence sense. why he went by Denti, yeah. Okay. You're not going to be surprised when you hear that his older brothers go by Jimbo and PJ. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so. pretty okay. Wow. All righty. All right. And I can't tell you too much about Denti Smith's childhood, unfortunately. There's a single letter from his mother to his aunt that describes him as, quote, less of a handful than Jimbo and PJ, but it's really hard to tell what that translates to. Sure. Uh, He seems like a bright kid. He's great with animals. The thing about Denti is that he is extremely poorly supervised. Okay. So when the U.S. gets involved in World War II, he's in first or second grade, and almost immediately his family structure changes again. So his brothers enlist as soon as they turn 18, which is in September of 1944. Okay. And they go off to New York State for training. I guess boot camp? Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Or basic training it would have been at that time, I think. All right. So at this point, his mother gets a job at the munitions plant in Egg Harbor. Okay. Continuing our egg theme, she's also moonlighting as a cook in the Seaside Hotel in Beachtown, which is owned by a cousin of Leonardo's and is a major buyer of Smith Bird Farm eggs. Okay. Sidebar? Sidebar. Their old menus have been digitized, so I looked at the ones for 1945. (laughs) Okay. Seaside Restaurant has a seasonal special where you can buy a swan's egg omelet for a dollar. Oh. (laughs) It comes with a free gin fizz. (laughs) Wow. Uh, And a side of roasted celery. And the menu does specify fresh, wholesome swan's eggs. So did she have a deal going with, you know, her her husband, the swan provider? She must have, right? Right? Yeah. So when Denti comes home during the year, she's living down the house. He's living at the house down the road. He's working at the bird farm with his dad. And he's just kind of like generally unsupervised apart from that. I don't want to say feral, but he's definitely more (laughs) independent than maybe any 10-year-old living in the wilderness should be. 
Okay. His mom is okay. working all the time. He's getting himself up. He's putting himself to bed. He's making his own swan omelets. Yep. Hopefully not go. with the matching cocktail. But again, there's nobody supervising him. He can pretty okay. much do what he wants this summer. In late May, Denty is chasing a duck through the forest when he comes upon what he thinks is an ostrich egg in a grass nest about 10 feet off the ground in a dead pine tree. Okay. Now, ostriches have not done well on Smith's bird farm. Leonardo was raising them for their feathers, which he dyes and ships to Las Vegas because the war in Europe has forced showgirls to turn to American suppliers for their plumes. Okay. Uh, But despite the cranberry diet and the abundant pine cones, ostriches are just not suited for the environment. They tend to get sick a lot, according to Leonardo's journals. And he counts their eggs. They're laying like half of what they would, or half of what they're supposed to. Okay. Uh, Also, when he goes to process the plumes, it's really hard to get the pine pitch off. Apparently, they love to rub up against the pine trees, and it ruins their feathers. Sure. So Leonardo isn't going broke on his ostriches, but he's not making any money either. Okay. So Denti is really excited to find this egg, and when he decides it's abandoned, because there are absolutely no sign of ostriches around, he carries it home to the bird farm and puts it under an incubator in the canary room. Okay. And then because he's 10, he forgets about it. Like, he doesn't even think to compare the egg to his dad's collection of ostrich eggshells. Right. And also, if he had thought to tell his dad about the find, Leonardo might have pointed out, ostriches do not go up into trees to lay eggs. Yeah, that's that's (laughs) not what they do. All right, so if the egg Denty Smith found wasn't an ostrich egg, what was it? Uh, An abnormally sized swan egg. A heron egg. (laughs) That's some omelet you're going to get out of this thing. Right? This is where we introduce the Jersey Devil to our episode. Okay. The Jersey Devil is an extremely rare winged amphibian native to the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. Okay. The scientific name is Ineptius mendax, and it's mm-hmm. also known locally as the Barrens Hellbat. Yes. The Leeds Devil. And my favorite, the North American Platypus, because of its matchup <laughs> of parts. Right, right, yeah. You got any and, more nicknames for us? Um... I, I have, uh, what was it, the, uh, the the croaking cry was one I ran into because it's apparently got a weird, like, I can't even describe it. If you if you search it up on YouTube, you can hear, like, audio clips of, because they've had, you know, they've had some people go out and, and be able to record them at this point. Yeah, of course. Um, and they just sound kind of hilarious. They almost sound like a goose choking. Yeah. Did you hear these at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've and heard then, like chattering and like a snorting, yeah. sneezing sound. So they do this. They do this communication that sounds like you know uh, uh, the chattering of teeth almost. Oh, and then, you're thinking of the clicking of the claws. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then you'll hear this weird like hawking noise, and it's like and then it's like a honk and a choke at the same yeah. time. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Oh, it's so scary. Once um, you hear it in the dark. You uh, will not unhear it. (laughs) No, no, thank you. Now, so I was looking into this and Mm -hmm. I I was having a really hard time checking to see if there was any other, are there any other species under that taxonomy or is it just? No, they're on their own. They're like platypus. That's what I thought. Yeah. 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 Okay. They don't really fit into the taxonomy that we use for scientific names. Right. They're, they're kind of like a singular branch of the evolutionary tree. They don't have relatives basically. Yeah. But they have been around for a wicked long time. I mean, these are not, you know, there are fossil records of these, right? I'm not sure. Okay. I thought I saw something about fossils. All right. So avoiding a Jersey Devil is pretty easy because aside from being nocturnal, they're very shy. Yep. And they have a particular aversion to humans, machinery, cleared land, and livestock. They're also excellent at camouflage, and their scale coloration matches the striped patterns of pine needles. Okay. For hundreds of years, no one outside the Pine Barrens even believes that the Jersey Devil is real. So if you read any of the scientific literature written prior to 1975, the Jersey Devil is often dismissed as a cryptid, a ghost story, or a hoax, despite the taxidermied specimen at the Smithsonian. Yep. Which was acquired in the 19th century and declared fake by three different sets of experts after examinations yep. in 1879, 1921, and 1937. Although the 1937 one, 
that gets called into question as well, because the guy doing the examination had a material interest in finding it to be a fraud. So. Right. He did <laughs> write a number of books based on <laughs> based on debunking other yeah. people's interesting finds. Although it was the same, the same. That's the same guy who did the uh, the the Fiji mermaid, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and he and was to actually, be fair, he had seen some fakery. He had seen some fakery, and he was a pretty talented amateur taxidermy artist. So yeah. he knew he knew when, what to look for. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, these big stitching marks across the middle. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that specimen, of course, has now been DNA typed and is known to be a genuine yep. specimen. It's just in really bad shape. Okay. I will just go over their physical description for those of you who have not yep. seen a photo. Jersey devils are bipedal, meaning they stand on two long skinny legs that terminate in a hoof. Now, that's a cloven hoof, like yep. a deer, with a dewclaw at the heel. Uh, and they're tall. The adults top out at five feet or yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, they are big. They're big, they really yeah. Are big. They're skinny, but they're yeah. big. They're covered in scales, and they have a snaky tail with a barb on the end. That's a dull barb. They use it for hitting you, not poisoning yeah. you. They're not venomous. They're not venomous. Like, that, no, they're that's not That's one venomous. of those things that people worry about. They're winged. Yep. They're not great flyers, but they like to glide. Yeah, they're good gliders. And they have a huge wingspan. Those are leathery wings, yep. like a bat. Yep. They have gills tucked away behind each shoulder, and they use their wings for this kind of slow gliding swimming in lakes and ponds when the water's deep enough. Uh, under the wings, they have these fat little T-Rex arms, which <laughs> would look funny, except for the claws. Yeah, those claws are business claws, my friends. They are, <laughs> they are business claws. You're exactly right. Oh. They're long. They're curved. They are very sharp. Yep. Uh, they're used for climbing trees, yep. digging dens, and taking snapping turtles apart, which is not not super easy a feat to do for anyone who doesn't have claws. Yep. Uh, the Jersey Devil clicks them when they're agitated, and I you can listen to an audio clip on YouTube yep. if you're in the mood. Uh, it sounds exactly like a playing card clipped to a bicycle wheel. Yeah. That tick 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 tick. Yep. Yeah. If you hear that in the Pine Barrens in the middle of the night, turn around, maybe. Maybe turn around. Uh, exit. Yeah. Exit, is, <laughs> exit with some haste. Exit pursued by Jersey Devil. <laughs> uh, their head is blunt and snouty. The comparison that gets used a lot is a goat's head, but I think it's more like a sheep's. It's mostly nose. Yeah. It's got these long slanted nostrils that they can yeah. kind of flare shut in the water. To uh, round out our picture, they have huge eyes that are very reflective yep. and can sometimes appear red in sunset or artificial light. Yeah. Nobody knows how long they live, but breeding pairs lay one egg at a time, about once every six to ten years, and they spend years raising their young, so it's assumed they can get quite elderly. Yep. Six of the wild Jersey Devils that have been radio tagged are at least 50 years old, and they're roaming all over the Pine Barrens, covering as much as 20 miles a day. Uh, they live on berries, grubs, and tubers in the summer and fall, and in the wetter parts of the year, they set up camp in the boggy areas. Yep. And they're looking for fish, snakes, turtles, and their favorite is frogs. Yep. Uh, very few frogs in the Pine yep. Barrens. Good source of protein. Uh, in the winter, they like to den underground, which is another reason why they are very hard to spot. Uh, they kind of quasi-hibernate in groups down there. They are extremely good at digging out deep, winding, very well-camouflaged shelters. Mm -hmm. And finally, as Denty Smith could tell you, they like to lay their eggs in spring in a tree in a grass nest. Yeah. Now, the way they behave around eggs is really unusual. They like to leave it alone in the nest for weeks and weeks yeah. while they're out collecting frogs and tubers. They make a kind of compost pile out of the food at the base of a tree. And then when it's time for the egg to hatch, the parents will go up to the egg and kind of like help the baby crack the egg. The egg is incredibly yeah. tough. If it looks like it's not going to be a healthy one... They just leave it up there, yeah. and if the baby makes the grade, they move it to the frog pile, and they kind of guard it while the baby chows down for a few days, during which time it triples in weight and grows claws. And then off they go for flying and swimming lessons. Yep. They're actually like very involved very parents attentive for parents. amphibians. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> so adults stay with their hatchlings for about a year, year 18 months, and then they go on their own. They go off on their own. 
So despite their ungainly looks and this huge investment in their reproductive habits, they are the apex predator of the pine barrens, and their only threats are humans and habitat loss. So this lifestyle requires a lot of time and a lot of space. There have been sightings of Jersey devils across the pine barrens for at least hundreds of years, probably thousands. Of course, we have the folktale of Mrs. Leeds's 13th child being born a Jersey devil, but (laughs) let's set that aside as a quasi-political cautionary tale, which probably is, and move on to some documented incidents. You ready? I am. The first Europeans to live in the area documented several sightings at dusk in the summertime, especially around the wetlands and the wild blueberry patches. And the Jersey Devil is blamed for the disappearance of two toddlers, one in 1690 and one in 1710, both of whom wandered away from their parents in the Pine Barrens and were not seen again. There's no evidence that the Jersey Devil actually grabbed them. And it would be very unlike them to try and eat. It's a very large prey (laughs) object. Let's just be honest about that. Yeah, that one is uh, very tentative. Naval Captain Stephen Decatur saw oh, one flying near the coast guy. during the Revolutionary War. Yep. He fired a cannonball yes, he at did. it from his warship. <laughs> what a tool. He missed, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Napoleon's older brother Joseph spotted one while hunting in the Pine Barrens in the 1820s. Apparently, he was close enough to see it and smell it and hear it clicking, Okay. but not close enough to shoot it. A Mrs. Andrew Overbacker found a juvenile female in her chicken yard in Lumberton, New Jersey in 1846. She clubbed it to death with a shovel and sold the corpse to her dentist for $4. (laughs) It later became the much debated specimen at the Smithsonian. For those of you wondering how it was misidentified for so long, clubbed to death with a shovel would do it. (laughs) Well, you got to do what you got to do to protect your chickens. Uh, it's, it's true. I'm just saying, like, that's why... <laughs> Leonardo Smith would know. <laughs> that's why it was difficult to uh, to identify. In 1909, a rash of sightings were touched off when a Jersey Devil landed on top of a streetcar in Haddon Heights, New Jersey, during a snowstorm. Yes. I Scaring the conductor yep. into a near-fatal heart attack and causing a passenger to faint. I read about this one, and it's interesting because... They're usually, you know, doing that sort of hibernation at that time. Yeah, they're not a snow creature. So this must have been one that was driven out of its habitat and absolutely starving, you know, to come that close to people, to be in that mm-hmm. environment. Um, and, and they didn't catch that one, right? No. Okay. Uh, so there are a bunch of witnesses. They described it as extremely aggressive. Yeah. So it clawed up the streetcar's upholstery and uh, kind of like roared into people's faces before taking off into the snow with a fresh pie. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Christmas pie devil. Yes, yep. that's right. This is the Christmas pie devil story. Oh, I love that one. I just, I, uh The pie is never seen again, no, Greg. No, no, this is the real tragedy here. <laughs> All right. So in the next three weeks, there are 300 sightings throughout New Jersey, Delaware, and Pennsylvania, way beyond the known range of the Jersey devil. Yep. And if you read the contemporary news reports, the hyperbole and speculation just, like, jumps off the page for you. Yeah. My favorite example is an article called Leeds Devil Murders Woman in Swamp. Oh, God. That's the headline. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the story is about a woman who drowns in Lake Atzion, supposedly after being chased there by what's described as a howling pack of bloody-eyed Jersey devils. Mm-hmm. The witness to this drowning is her husband, who coincidentally inherits a large life insurance policy mm-hmm. and then disappears with his mistress. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's totally the Jersey Devil, everybody. Totally. I mean, a the coroner agreed. Yeah. <laughs> he must have been fairly convincing. <laughs> yeah. Or or paid a little sum of money, allegedly. 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 This is, this is all alleged, yeah. dear listeners. Yeah. Later that year, the Philadelphia Zoo offers a $10,000 bounty for a live specimen and bands of hunters start combing the Pine Barrens for Jersey Devils unsuccessfully. Yes. By 1911, the sightings have stopped and the zoo rescinds the bounty after a con artist named Fletcher Z. Dollarino tries to sell them a stuffed kangaroo covered in python leather with wings and a tail stitched on. Can we take a two-second sidebar on Fletcher Dollarino? I already have one. Oh, excellent. I was going to talk about uh, Fletcher Delarino's Miracle Cure. Ooh. Did you, uh, did you look into, into that medicine. one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Fletcher Delarino, and maybe this is where he got the uh, the snakeskin to coat the kangaroo, 
was it he inherited or he purchased a snake farm down in I want to say it was like Arkansas, Alabama. He did not pay for anything in his okay. life, so, so he probably I'm going to go with it. stole. Stole works for me too. <laughs> he would take the snakes uh, from this from this uh, snake farm that were supposed to be harvested for their venom for medicinal anti venom properties, right? And he didn't know what to do with them, so he just had them all clubbed to death. Boy, he would have gotten along well with Mrs. Overbach. Yes, the, uh, he would have. Shovel. <laughs> they would have. They would have gone into business together and made a fortune. So what? What wound up happening was he had all these dead snakes, and uh, with no um, real purpose for them, nothing to do with them. He couldn't sell them meat. He wasn't going to eat them or anything. He throws them all in these three oak barrels, and leaves them there. And there's a big rain that next night. And one of the barrels springs a leak. Now, to most people, this is a setback. But to Dollarino, this is an opportunity. He immediately sure. goes out to his uh, medicine wagon and grabs a bunch of his, uh, what were those called? The apothecary bottles? You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Little like yes, square things with the cork and everything. And he just starts filling up this like dead snake water into these bottles And labels them as Fletcher Dollarino's Miracle Cure, 100% genuine oil, uh, snake oils. Hmm. And he claims, he writes up this whole thing that he claims that he, you know, he found these, these snakes in the, in the deepest Amazon. And that if you put them through a roller and press them, this oil comes out and the oil has magically restorative properties. And he gets on his medicine wagon and he starts heading up from, I, I, I can't remember if it was Alabama or Arkansas, but he comes up towards the north and mm-hmm. um, just makes a fortune. Good for him. This guy literally is the reason why we have the phrase of snake oil. You know, I've always wondered where that comes from. It comes from Fletcher Dollarino. That's so interesting. I do not understand how he had the skill set to cover a kangaroo in python leather, but... I think he just had the python leather. (laughs) That's probably it. (laughs) He just had the python. Python, sewing needle, he's done. He thinks he made it. Where's his nine-part Netflix documentary? It's it's got to be in the Fletcher works. Dollarino. We want it. All right. Uh, he what was yours? Was not able to fool the Philadelphia Zoo. Yeah. He was able to sell this creation a little bit later to Ripley's Believe It or Not, Aha. where it is still displayed in the fraud or fact room at the Ripley's in Wisconsin Dells. Okay. Uh, you'll be interested in this. In 2017, a visitor poll found that 45% of viewers yep. thought it was real. Okay. So. Hey, good good job, Dollarino. Good job. <laughs> I hope your snake oil money made you happy and you went on to live an honest life. Nope, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> but after 1909, there are no more confirmed documented witness yeah. sightings of the Jersey Devil until 1945 when President James Polk Smith's egg hatches yes. under a heat lamp in the canary room at Smith's bird farm. When the egg that Denty Smith found finally hatched on June 2nd, he had to kind of help it out with a bullpeen hammer, which sounds terrifying, but... But that's how hard these shells are, yeah. Yeah, and 10-year-olds are great at breaking eggs. (laughs) Agreed, yes. Uh, He was surprised to find inside not a baby ostrich, but this incredibly weird-looking bird, snake, sheep, dinosaur thing. Yep. Denty is immediately infatuated with it. He brings it home. He spends the next few days feeding it different foods with an eyedropper. Eventually, he hits on this combination of milk, chicken fat, frog legs, and cranberry jam as the perfect food. Okay. Uh, You will be surprised to know that the San Diego Zoo actually feeds their pair something remarkably similar, which they call frog mash. Okay. Hey. Animals got to eat what they got to eat. All right. We all have a diet. We all have have a a special diet. Uh, he turns his bedroom into a habitat for his new pal. He is, he's got a dishpan of muddy water out, which he took from the bog. He's got another dishpan of raw chicken. He's got some live cranberry plants. He's got okay. his mother's antique mahogany coat trees so it can practice climbing. Again, nobody is keeping an eye on this child. It sounds he is like not he's not ever told yeah. to clean his room. <laughs> Denty may be 10 years old, but he's already a scientist, and he is completely fascinated with the little Jersey Devil. 
He takes extensive notes on it, its its growth, its habits, and its bowel movements. Okay. Uh, he's not very organized about it, and he uses a lot of like creative spelling and notation, sure. so it's hard to get a complete picture. But his notes have been digitized at the University of New Jersey's resource page for the Endangered Species Program, if you mm-hmm. want to take a look. Yep. The drawings alone are worth Googling. Yeah, they're interesting. Uh, it's unclear how much his parents knew about Denti's project. So Leonardo Smith's records... Uh, this is not mentioned at all in his journal or his business records. Mm-hmm. Ginny Smith does write her sister sometime around June 1945, quote, President has a new pet in the house, a disgusting thing, but it's taking care of a dozen rats and every single cockroach, end quote. Cool. But Denty was in the habit of bringing snakes home as well. It's impossible sure. to know if she's referring to the baby Jersey Devil or if she'd seen it herself. Okay. Okay. Uh, Denti's notes indicate that it likes to hide when people other than him are around. Although, judging by the smell of a bedroom full of raw chicken and bog mud in the middle of the summer, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. nobody was dropping by. <laughs> yeah, there's that. In late June, there are two articles buried in the back pages of the Egg Harbor Sentinel. They're pretty short, so I'm going to read them both. Okay. The first is June 27th, and it's pushed all the way to the last page. On the front page is the news of the founding of the United Nations, which takes up most of the rest of the paper. Okay. Boy Scouts attacked by animal is the headline. (laughs) Quote, Boy Scout Troop 5, visiting from Maplewood to practice overnight camping at Winded Lake in the Pine Barrens, were startled to see several unusual creatures at their campfire this past Sunday night. Hardly had the boys, ages 8 to 12, completed their evening weenie roast when they were swooped upon by what their scoutmaster... Mr. Harold LaPointe, described as, quote, flying lizard frogs with red eyes and claws. Mm-hmm. The scouts ran for shelter in the mess tent and huddled there as the canvas was ripped to shreds overhead. Mr. LaPointe was examined by a doctor and found to be sober. <laughs> Good. The last sentence yeah. is just chef's kiss yep. to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's exactly the topper you need on that one. Yep. The second article is July 12th, and this one is pushed off the front page of the Burlington County Examiner by the news that American forces have finally taken Okinawa. Okay. Uh, to be fair, it's probably pushed back because it is a weird story. Yeah. Man clawed, burn burned, goats survive is the headline. Okay. Quote, a Nemo County man, identified only as Patrick C., reported a vicious injury and the loss of his barn when he was assaulted by what he insists was a North American platypus late Thursday evening. Okay. Following a nighttime entry by the hayloft, which was open for ventilation, the creature allegedly used its tail to overturn a kerosene lantern, and within minutes, the barn was ablaze, with Patrick C. and his six goats escaping with some difficulty. Okay. I never want to see one of them again, he told this reporter, displaying his billy goat Ozymandias, which had been badly singed around the left flank. Oh. His own injury was a cut to the upper scalp, which did not require medical attention. Mm-kay. In July and August, you can see sightings and attacks start to crop up more and more disturbingly because they're getting closer and closer to the things that Jersey Devils traditionally stay away from, such as humans and cleared land. Yeah even as the rest of the paper is devoted to the war in the Pacific. So I'm just going to give you my two favorite highlights. Okay. In Mount Holly, a pair of Jersey Devils causes a panic when they are spotted sitting on a telephone line in daylight watching children playing in the elementary school playground. Can you imagine yeah. looking up from your hopscotch and seeing a pair of these guys yeah. staring down at you? Yeah. No, thank that you. That is yikes. Later that week, the same pair smashes a skylight over the Burlington Free Library's public reading room, injuring a librarian and doing what the examiner calls, quote, befouling damage, end quote. Yeah, they (laughs) pooped everywhere. They pooped everywhere, guys. That's what they did. Before flying away. Yeah, that was probably incredibly nasty. The most serious incidents occur a couple weeks later, and they both center on Denty Smith. Now, this is the end of August. Okay. On August 30th, Denty's helping his dad load chickens into the back of the farm's panel truck for the trip to Trenton. It takes all afternoon, so at dinner time, he and Leonardo finally hop in the truck and start down these winding back roads to the highway. They're creeping along the road by the bog when the back of the truck just erupts. The chickens are just going crazy. Mm-hmm. Denty turns around, and he sees a huge thing with red eyes about six inches from his face. Hmm. He screams. Yep. Leonardo screams. 
and they drive right off the road and into the swamp, where the truck starts sinking in the mud, and they have to scramble out and run a mile back to the farm in a cloud of escaping chickens yep. with these Jersey devils swooping down at them the whole time. Hmm. Okay. Poor Denty. He gets slashed three times, leaving him with wounds to his arms, scalp, and shoulders before they make it back to the farm. And his father has to drive him to the hospital in Mount Holly for stitches and I think probably some... 1945 Valium, which is probably yep. pure opium based yep. or possibly snake oil. Yeah, hey. Because young President Smith is understandably hysterical. Sure. Mid-afternoon on September 2nd, Denty is being evaluated for discharge at the hospital when the attending doctor hears a strange noise in the hall. He finishes changing the bandages and steps outside to see what the matter is. I will give you the statement he gives to the police because it is so bizarre. Okay. Quote, when I went to the ground floor B-Wing hallway, I came face to face with two of the creatures I understood to be Jersey Devils, although I have not seen them before. They stood at my eye level and switched their tails on the floor as they waited for me to emerge, turning their heads from side to side. I became irritated, as I do not care for wild animals. I believe I said shoo, which they ignored. <laughs> Down the hall, I could see a number of nurses and orderlies crouched near the lobby. Some appeared to be injured, and all were frightened. I was about to retreat to my patient's room and close the door for his safety when the larger creature pushed past me into the room, knocking me to the floor. They appeared to be agitated upon finding my patient. Before I could call out for help or gain my feet, I heard the window shatter. When I returned to the room, both creatures and my patient, President Smith, were no longer to be seen, nor was there any sign of them in the parking lot, Prospect Street, or the vacant lot beyond. Hmm. End quote. And that's the abduction of Denty Smith. He's just vanished out of his hospital bed yep. and carried away by a pair of Jersey Keep devils. Keep in mind, they are big, but they're not, they're like, they're all twigs. Like, they physically couldn't carry a child like that. If they're motivated and there are two of them, I think Denty was a skinny little kid. That's true. He wasn't, that's true. He wasn't a big guy. I, I think he actually did get hoisted out of the window and I believe in the theory slapped away that, into the forest. See, that's the thing. I don't, I don't buy that one. I believe in the theory that he recognized them, they panicked and smashed the windows, and he followed them out because he was only on, what, like the first, second floor? Yeah, he's on the first floor. First floor. So he just gets out and runs. Like, But they've just, like, attacked him the other night. He also had raised one from, like, you know, from an egg. He knew what they were. He got, he got, I, I, don't, I don't buy it. I don't think they carried him out. I think he, right, well. I think he chose <laughs> to go out with him. But that's just me. We can both be right because he never talks about he this. He won't. Yeah, don't no, actually no, know what happens. No, he doesn't he doesn't ever issue an official statement on it. Despite a manhunt that includes the Mount Holly Police, the New Jersey State Police, and the Ladies Auxiliary Defense Group. Yeah, go. There is no sign of him. <laughs> they were like the ladies who filled in for the police yep. while the police were away fighting. They, uh, uh, these they were, were these were the scolders much tougher yeah. <laughs> than the regular police and they really kept the community in they line. were called the scolding mothers these guys were amazing uh they Aww. people would there there was at least a couple of documented instances where people would be you know committing hooliganism and these women sure. would just like roll up on them and just fold their arms and stare and the people would shamefaced and go home the one time that they had to haul somebody out of a bar they broke both his arms yeah, they were not to be they, you, No, sir. And I would think they'd be great at searching because they were, like, very meticulous, yep. very, like... And very motivated. Yes, very motivated. Very motivated. Uh, they were all moms, I yep. think. Yeah. They all knew that Denty was going to be in some serious trouble when he got home. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, no one is able to find him. No. And during that time, the search is complicated because that morning is when the news hit that the Japanese emperor had formally surrendered to the Allies yep. ending World War II. So... News media is so excited about VJ Day yeah. that this bizarre animal attack, even though it has more witnesses, more evidence, and more injuries and damage mm. than any incident involving Jersey Devils ever yeah. in the history of New Jersey, yeah. it gets pushed way off the front page and in some cases out of the paper completely. Yeah. I found, or rather the librarian helping me found, just three little articles in the local papers. They're each about a paragraph long okay. and nothing at all in the larger papers. Yeah. I'm not going to read them to you because they're very yeah, similar. Yeah, all yeah, three yeah. articles have the same headline. Uh, it's local boy missing after animal attack. 
You can tell they were written by reporters at the very bottom of the totem pole. Yeah. So to misidentify the animal as an owl. <laughs> yep. And the third misidentifies him as Dennis Smith. Uh, but the gist is the same. Several people are injured and a young boy is missing after an animal attack in the Mount Holly Hospital. However, he's not missing for long. So on the evening of the third, Mrs. Smith and her sister, a Mrs. Etta Sharkey, are sitting on the front porch waiting for the state police to call when the back gate opens and in walks Denty. Yep. He's still wearing the pajamas that the hospital had him in. He still has that huge bandage on his head. But other than that and some scratches on his chest and shoulders, he's in pretty good shape. Yeah. Right behind him, walking up the path, clicking their claws, looking very pissed off, are a pair of Jersey Devils. Mrs. Smith is not in any shape for this. No. She's just learned that the war is over and her twins are safe and will be coming home. And then for the past 12 hours, she's been out of her mind with worry about her youngest. And here he is strolling out of the woods like nothing's happened. With two very large, clicky amphibians. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think that even registers to her. Oh, okay. Apparently she just stands up and shrieks, President, your father's going to hear about this? And then faints. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't read that. That's amazing. Oh yeah, so, yeah. So Edda Sharkey's got a got a yeah. Figure. Yeah. So and that's the letter to her husband. I don't know if you came across this. Uh, but, it's uh, amazing. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm going to quote the letter, uh, just the paragraph regarding this incident. Yep. It goes on for pages. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, quote: The boy trotted across the yard and up the steps with those two loathsome things close behind, like dogs trained to heal. I saw that he was coming up to the house, so I crouched close behind Ginny. Oh, how they stank as they passed. They fixed me with their evil red glare, and I made the sign of the cross, which they turned away from, and followed him into the house. (laughs) Not five minutes later, out they came with a third smaller one. This one was hopping from one foot to the other, chattering shrilly and carrying a live frog in its claws as it scurried along. Off the porch, they started flapping and screeching to the roof of the chicken coop, and then they ate the frog before flying away towards the west. I left Ginny and went inside. President was sitting at the table eating tube steak and mashed potatoes with his fingers. Hello, auntie, said he. Did somebody feed the canaries? End quote. Yeah. Just just so full of non sequiturs, I don't even know where to I, <laughs> The thing, the thing that, that everybody draws from this is that obviously that was the mated pair. He, he had taken their, you know their egg and hatch which their they worked baby. really hard on exactly they probably had a whole like pile of dead frogs under there right and uh and so he gives them back their kid and off they go and everything's fine except denty refuses to talk about it yeah yeah so mrs sharky this is the aunt he lives with yeah. so they know each other pretty well yeah, she yeah. goes on to scold him and ask him where he's been he refuses to say beyond in the pine woods in the or woods. in yep. the bog the state police call the search off and go home, and the whole incident appears to be just completely ignored as far as therapy, trauma recovery, all the things we'd assume the police or social services uh, or ni- somebody would do when a child has been missing for 12 hours. 1945. Nobody's going to do <laughs> turns up in the company of a pair of extremely rare, extremely dangerous wild animals. Yeah, no. There's just no record of anything like that for young President Smith. Well, he gets interviewed by the one newspaper person, and then they're... they're- yeah, but it's such a non-interview. No, it is, because their entire write-up is like, the boy refused to answer questions. This reporter had to, what was it? Like, this reporter had to give up, finally, something like that. It was just this, okay, why did you even file this article? Is there a column inch that's missing today? Like, <laughs> it was it was pointless. They don't even put a picture of him. I would no. love to see a picture of the child who has spent a day in the woods. With, with the Jersey <laughs> Devils? Jersey yes, Devils. yes, please. Uh, in a hospital gown. Uh, there's just no record that anything, yeah. any kind of healing activity goes no. on formally for no. for Denty. He continues working for the bird farm. He graduates from high school in 1953. He signs up to the accounting program at the Nemo County Trade School. That's his mother's idea. Yep. And then he just never shows up for his first day. But this time, at least he's vanishing under his own power. <laughs> yes. So he spends the 50s and 60s and the first part of the 1970s living on his own in various campsites deep in the Pine Barrens, yeah. and he becomes known as the Hermit of Erewhon. Yes. He's not a total hermit. Occasionally he'll no. emerge from the woods for a few weeks of work at the bird farm, 
which actually stays in business until Leonardo dies in the mid-80s. Uh, 84, wasn't it? I think so. And then he spends part of the winter with his mother or his brother's families. Uh, They all settle around Erewhon in Nemo County. Mm -hmm. So he does have a lot of family in the area, even though it's very rural. Yeah. But he definitely just, you know, prefers his own company. Yeah. Well, it's not really his own company, though, is it? Because, well, we got to talk about the film. Well, I'm going to get to the pictures. Okay. Okay. All right. So, uh, but feel free to sidebar when we get there. So what's he doing out there is, is the question. Yeah. And if you're picturing a Thoreau-style hermit living off the land so he can write about transcendentalism no. and beans. It's not what he's doing. Yeah, pretty far <laughs> off. Denty Smith is one of the great American amateur naturalists. And yes. he spends decades studying the Jersey Devil in its natural habitat. I love that National Geographic thing that refers to him as the Jane Goodall of the Pine Barrens. Because that's really what he's doing. Yeah. He's (laughs) trying to live among them and understand them. Right. Uh, He takes these great pictures Mm -hmm. when he has access to film. He writes about them. Uh, He draws them. He's still not a great artist. But his photos are fantastic. Even the early ones, which he takes on a really kind of crappy Instagram. Yeah, yeah. It's a cheapo camera. He keeps these insanely detailed notes on tracks, spore, courtship displays, eggs, nest, den, diet, family structures. Basically, everything we know about the behavior of wild Jersey devils comes from his observations in the field. In 1975, he has a brush with fame when the nature writer and local politician Miles Morrison comes across one of his photographs in the Egg Harbor Library and manages to catch him during one of his weeks at the bird farm. Denty is extremely wary of sharing his... I guess we could just call it insights yeah. on the Jersey Devil. Yep. Uh, but he agrees to show Miles an empty nest after Miles buys him a movie camera. You want to do your side? Uh, this is this is about the time when those famous pictures for National Geographic were taken. Yeah, that's the 1975 photo. Exactly, essay. exactly, and um, that is actually a still frame from one of these. It was like a nine millimeter camera, right? The, yeah, it was a basic yeah. like a super. He was filming. Um, this pair that he assumed was a mated pair uh, Mm -hmm. sort of flitting around in the trees when he noticed some interesting behaviors from both of them and realized they were, they were both circling that, that species of frog that grows very large in those lagoon areas. Um, (laughs) And one, a Gaius's bullfrog. Yeah, exactly. And one of them would swoop down and grab it. And then the other one would swoop down and try to grab it from the first one. And so they're playing tug of war with this frog and he gets, they are pretty big. They are big. uh, And he gets the whole thing on film. And uh, so that famous picture on the front of that issue of National Geographic we talked about is, is just a still image from that. And that film is in the National Archives because it's really the only, only really good footage we have of how they fly. And it's incredible. I'm going to blow your mind yeah. and uh, tell you that it has just, that footage has just been cleaned up and it's on YouTube now. Really? So I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah definitely. Cause so if you want to see that, I, definitely I actually check it haven't out. They've seen added that. sound. They've cleaned up the <laughs> okay. uh, audio and matched it. So it's. Oh, that's so cool. So you can hear, about, you can hear the clicking yeah. and the honk, the honk chokes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's only like a hundred seconds long, yeah. but it's really. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> it's really evocative. It's yeah. like watching dinosaurs fight over. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. Giant bullfrog. Uh, so Miles and Denty actually end up becoming friends and spending a lot of time together. So they do go on to share credit for that photo essay in uh, April of 1975 yep. edition of the National Geographic. Those pictures and the film and the story kind of sparks a lot of interest in biology circles. And that's when the projects at the Smithsonian and the San Diego Zoo spring up. The San Diego Zoo had a rough go of it. They were never actually br- able to bring back any live specimens. Though. Oh, okay. So they would do like necropsies yeah. after one died in the wild. Uh, that's also around the time when the University of New Jersey launches their endangered species program mm-hmm. about a year later. When a hatchling and a year old baby are orphaned in the great Nemo Burlington wildfire of 1982, Denty goes with them to San Diego Zoo, where they've been building that habitat. Right, okay. Okay. And that's when he spends a year there as a special advisor to the Jersey Devil Project, before returning to Erewhon to work with the by now critically endangered remaining population. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a habitat loss thing, as as they all are, but... 
Well, it's partly habitat and partly fire. Yeah. Uh, the Pine Barrens is very flammable for such a wet place. Yep. The habitat loss was very dramatic in the 80s when they were building all these like bedroom communities. Yep. They were trying to get within commuting distance of Philadelphia. Yeah. And for some reason, they thought that Erewhon would be yeah. <laughs> a great place. Uh, it never actually ends up getting any further than the planning stages because... Miles gets into politics. He had been like uh, into politics at a local level, and now he's kind of moving to the state level. Yep. Uh, he runs for state representative and wins. He's instrumental in getting the Jersey Devil Protection Act passed in 80, 1989. 89, 89. Okay. Right. Yep. So this is the piece of legislation that formally forbids development in the Nemo County portion of the Pine Barrens wetlands yep. where the Jersey Devil likes to nest. Yeah. And it also allows hunters to be prosecuted for serious jail time and fines for both injury and death to the animal. Miles goes on to write the essay collection, The All-American Platypus, which is what he and Denty like to call it. And the memoir, My Time in the Barrens, which is a short but really fascinating look at the modern problems that the Jersey Devil habitat faces. And of course, it's also an excellent character sketch of Denty Smith, the Hermit of Erewhon. Yeah. Denty Smith disappears in 1990 following an extremely hard winter and is presumed dead, although his body has never turned up. You can still visit Smith's Bird Farm, which yeah. is now owned by UNJ and functions as a satellite building for the Endangered Species Program. Yeah. They do have a little public area, almost like a visitor center, where you can see some of Denty Smith's notes and photographs. Yeah. You can watch the film. Yep. The uh, unrestored version, yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. And there's also a little museum where you can see an animatronic young Denty Smith interacting with an <laughs> animatronic Jersey Devil. That's cute. Uh, they say it represents the hatchling, but for some reason they've made it the size of a mature adult and given it like nonstop clicking claws. It is a true nightmare. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, That's not great. There's a yeah. reason why the Parents Guide to New Jersey doesn't encourage you to yeah. take young children there. Fair enough. Fair enough. But on the other hand, the Friends of the Jersey Devil sell stuffed Jersey Devils in the gift shop. They're okay. adorable and have red glow-in-the-dark eyes. Oh, cool. And the proceeds from that go to help with the preservation stuff, right? Yes, that's along with their uh, holiday fundraiser, yep. which is the Cranberry-Fed Goose and Jersey Devil Gingerbread Men. Oh, cool. cool. That money is goes into grant money to support habitat restoration, yep. wildfire control, and population studies. The Jersey Devil gingerbread men are famous. Those are the yeah. ones that people buy like a hundred of at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll see so they do up, actually yeah. make some money here. Yeah, you'll see them <laughs> up on like, uh, you know, Instagram celebrities. Oh, got my Jersey Devil. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's very trendy. Uh, I will say that the stuffed Jersey Devils are super cute. They're adorable. My kids actually had them as nightlights because their eyes never shut off. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's fun. It is important to help preserve you know it's it's one of those things they're extremely endangered extremely yeah. endangered there there may be something as few as what was it like 30 mated pairs right now is it that well long? there's the six that have radio collars and yeah. then we assume there's another 10 or 12 okay. okay because they they socialize the pair at the san diego zoo has had three hatchlings which have all been successfully reintroduced into the wild okay. uh so there is okay there is some hope so that they're, hope. they're sure. kind of bouncing back a little bit sure if you want to check out the Jersey Devils in the San Diego Zoo, there's a live webcam yep, in their habitat. Yeah, definitely put the link to that on the uh, in the show notes because yeah. it's, it's really cool to watch. So the original breeding pair, they're nicknamed Homer and Marge. Yep, yep. <laughs> they're currently working on making a dead frog and potato pile for their fourth egg. This morning when I peeked in, they're actually like starting to flap up and check on the eggs. Aww. So. And to be clear, the, the mm -hmm. three kids are named Lisa, Bart, and Maggie. Um, yes. But I'm not sure what they're going to name the fourth one. Have you heard anything it's, on that? Is it going to be Flanders? I mean, of course, the rumor mill is in overdrive, yeah. but... I had, I had heard they I would were going to call it, it Flanders. Named, yeah. <laughs> like or Mr. Burns. Or Mr. Burns. I think Burns. the little baby Mr. Burns little with the clicking. Mr. Burns. Yep, absolutely. Confusingly, the area around the bird farm, that 4,500 acres of Pine Barrens that was set aside for Jersey Devil Habitat Preservation... Yep. It's listed on the map as the President James Polk Smith Wilderness Reservation. Yeah, which is... It's not great. <laughs> yeah, it's a confusing name. I'm glad you pointed it out at the beginning because, yeah. 
Uh, I also want to point out it's beautiful. It's not very hiker friendly. No. So there are only a couple trails and they come with some pretty scary signage warning hikers uh-huh. to avoid carnivorous plants, snapping turtles, and Jersey devils. Yeah. Yep. And that is the story of the Jersey devil attacks of 1945. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our made up stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. Uh, since we got a lot of things wrong, please let us know. Yes, let us know about all of those. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly. And we know you do. Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? Thank you so much for joining us for our April 1st special episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, we're going to do a real disaster next week, returning to the uh, the mundanity and horror of actual life. Uh, mm. We are going to go down to Pennsylvania, where a steel and zinc mill killed a whole bunch of people. We're going to talk about the Donora Smog of 1948. Boy. Yeah. So, from both of us... And from the entire staff at Relative Disasters Podcast Industries, Happy Happy April April Fool's Fool's Day! Day.